If you have your Bibles, we're going to get right to the text this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn specifically, hold on a second. Something just happened with my app here. Go to Ezekiel. I'm sorry, not Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. The title of the message this morning is, Who is it for? Who is it for? We're going to be looking at the new covenant this morning. What is the benefit of the new covenant? Who is it written for? And what do you and I get out of it today in 2020? One of the things that I want to start off this morning and ask the question is, when you and I are growing up, do we have some things that we were really glad that we got? as we were growing up? Was there that one toy that you got? Or maybe as an adult, you finally got your first iPhone, right? Like some of us were very excited. We finally upgraded, and we got a nice iPhone. It was no longer the flip one, flip phone, right? We were excited. Some of you still don't like Apple, so I get it, you know? We, we, you'll come along the train at some point, okay? Took me a while as well. I'm a rebel at heart. Uh, but here's the thing. What happens is as we as we go through life, we have certain things that we purchase or we buy for ourselves or our children, and there's an excitement that goes into that, right? Like we're thrilled that we've, we've got it. We've got this new item. And then a couple years go by, guess what we need? Upgrade, right? Right, right? It's not, it's not, that one's not good enough anymore. We, we need the newest iPhone, right? Like we need the newest piece of technology. That was so 2015, okay? Whatever it is. You need another upgrade, right? And what ends up happening is you and I, we get into a perpetual, per, perpetual never-ending upgrade that we're in all the time. We have to constantly find ourselves upgrading to the next thing because the old thing gets aggravating and frustrating because it slows down, supposedly, right? It's not as good as the newest thing out there. And what ends up happening is because we've kind of gotten into that way of thinking, what happens is when we import that mentality to our Christian life, the new covenant that God has formed with his faithful children, and we're going to take a look at that this morning, the salvation that we've been given becomes old. We've gotten used to it. It's just not as exciting anymore. I've been a Christian for so many years, uh, it just really doesn't matter like it used to. And when we first were saved, that new thing was incredible to us, right? Like, that was the thing for us. Like, I got I literally had my sins forgiven. I can't believe that God would forgive a sinner like me. We were thrilled. And as time goes on, we almost reverse that to where we think we deserved that God gave us salvation. What happens here tragically in Jeremiah chapter 31 is what happens to really all of humanity. When God calls his people Israel, he gives them specific promises. He gives them the Mosaic covenant. And guess what happens they disobey. They don't follow. So what God actually has to do here, and we're going to see here clearly in the text, is God has to create a new covenant that he's going to set up with them. And the difference really ultimately is the Mosaic covenant was dependent on the nation obeying. The new covenant was ultimately dependent on God. And guess who probably does things more faithfully? God does, right? 
God is always faithful. He never backs away from a promise. He always fulfills his promise. Guess who breaks promises all the time? We do. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, we're going to look at two specific things here as, as it pertains to the new covenant. We're going to look at the explanation, verses 31 through 34. And number two, the certainty. Number one, the explanation. Let's read verses 31 through 34 here in chapter 30, 31 here. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more." See, here's, here's what's interesting. When you look at the Mosaic Covenant, and you really see the Ten Commandments is really kind of laid out in that covenant that God makes with Israel, a lot of people, if they were to ask themselves the question, how do I match up to the Ten Commandments, we know that even though Israel broke all those things that God told them to do, we know that we do the very same thing, right? Like if you went through the list, like not coveting, like how many of us have never coveted? Right? Like... It's true for all of us, right? Well, how about another one? Putting other gods before him. How many of us have ever put another god before the Lord Almighty? How about, how about uh, stealing? Now, some of us will say, well, I don't literally steal. Well, have you ever cheated on something that really is stealing? You see, your definition is going to constantly change to approve of yourself. But you know, if we were to be honest with ourselves in the standard that God's laid out in his word, we're very inconsistent. And the reason we're inconsistent is we are flawed people. We are flawed people, just like Israel was. In fact, what's interesting is this new covenant that God lays out for Israel is an unconditional covenant. It's made with the na nation of Israel, and it's different from the Mosaic covenant. In fact, the phrase new covenant is only found one time in the Old Testament, right here. Although a promise of a future covenant is made in many other texts and, and multiplied mul multiple times throughout. A reminder, though, on why the Mosaic Covenant was not enough. We're going to look at three specific reasons why the Old Covenant was not enough. Number one, when the high priest would offer the animal sacrifice for sin, it was only a temporary covering. It had to continually be repeated. You didn't just offer one time. You had to continually keep offering that sacrifice. In fact, another reason that the Old Covenant was not as good as the New Covenant is the commandments themselves did not provide the ability to obey. In fact, when you and I match up to the law of God, we realize that we can't keep it all. We can't do the things that the law requires of us. We're incapable of doing that. And number three, the old covenant was never really meant to be permanent. It was not to last forever. Remember, all of the things that the old sacrificial system did was point to one person that would be entering human history, the God-man, Jesus Christ. 100% God, 100% man. It all pointed to him. And here are some other texts that refer to the new covenant, though not explicitly stated. Isaiah 42.6 says this, I, the Lord, have called you and given you power to see that justice is done on earth. 
Through you I will make a covenant, so that's a future that he's presenting to Israel here, with all peoples. Through you I will bring light to the nations. Jeremiah 32:40. I will make an eternal covenant with them. I will never stop doing good things for them, and I will make them fear me with all their heart, so they will never turn away from me. Ezekiel 37:26 says this. I will make a covenant with them that guarantees their security forever. I will establish them and increase their population and will see it to that my temple stands forever in their land. See, this, this covenant itself has implications to Gentiles as well because we're grafted into the blessing of the Messiah who kept perfectly the old and gave us the new. Let's take a look at some of the implications of the new covenant in the New Testament. Jesus, first of all, states that the new covenant is ratified by the shedding of his blood. In Matthew 26, he says this. This is where you see the Old Testament and the New Testament connecting. Look at this. In Matthew 26, 28, and this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then Mark 14, 24, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Luke 22.20 says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. You see, a lot of these verses we, we quote all the time, right? We, we, we mention these things when we do the Lord's Supper, but do we understand the connection to the new covenant? Or do we just kind of read through that and we miss the, the, the important pieces, if you will? In fact, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the new covenant. Remember this text in 1 Corinthians 11, 25 and 26. It says this, In the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. See, the new covenant has benefits that the old could not give us. So what are some of those benefits? First one, the old was determined on our ability to obey the law. The new is based on Christ's obedience as a lamb slain for us. Both are still requiring faith. In the Old Testament, they still had to believe God and have faith that one day God was going to send a redeemer. Imagine having to keep track of all your sins, believer, and having to make sure that you offered proper atonement every single day. See, I don't, I don't think we take a careful enough look sometimes as to what we actually have as believers in the New Testament era in comparison to the Old Testament. Could you imagine every single day having to go back and offer a sacrifice and having to go, here's what I didn't realize I was doing, I did it again. I broke God's law right here. And continually having to keep doing that isn't the access to the Heavenly Father much better? Isn't it much better to be able to go, Father, forgive me, instead of having to get up, go to the priest, own it again, tell him, here, I have to offer this again. You have Christ who paid for it all. The second thing is the old only exposes our sin, the new actually covers it. In fact, Galatians 3, 24 and 25 says this, Therefore, the law was our tutor or, t or, or, or teacher 
to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And Ephesians 1, 7 says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Here's what's incredible. What most people don't realize is when we were given the law in the Old Testament, when the Jewish people specifically were given the law in the Old Testament, the goal, the intention of the law was to show them that they are sinners. The law itself could not save them. The law itself can't save you and me. Your performance yesterday does not save you today, believer. What you did yesterday does not account for your righteousness in the sense of salvifically. You are not saved by what you've done. You are only saved by what Christ has done on your behalf. In fact, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, if you will, that only showed that you're a sinner. It never did anything about the sin. It was only a temporary recovering. The old also, number three, did not give us the ability to obey. The new actually does. In Romans 8, verse 1, it says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's one thing that a lot of Christians today don't pay attention to, and they need to. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit never permanently indwelled believers. He came and left. In the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit was sent after Christ had ascended, He permanently dwells believers. You and I have the ability to obey that the Old Testament saints did not have. We have the Holy Spirit given to us as a guarantee. You know the only reason that you are here this morning if you're a faithful follower of Christ is because the Holy Spirit has done something inside? Now, some of us, we may come because of religious reasons. we got to look a certain way. But for the most part, people that follow God, the only reason they're following God ultimately is because the Holy Spirit's done something inside. Sure, there are hypocrites in the faith. But you and I, how do we know, how do we have the confidence tomorrow that we're going to believe the gospel still? The Holy Spirit. That's the only confidence you and I can have. In fact, the Holy Spirit gives us new life. The Holy Spirit is the one that works in our lives, in our children's lives, to bring us to saving faith. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we are dead. And dead people can't make decisions. They need to be revived. The Holy Spirit revives us, gives us new life. And then we have a desire to know Christ. We love the gospel message. We're grateful for eternity with Him. Let me pause for a second and make a statement that I think is so important, and I think many times we miss this in the church. Heaven is not about the loved ones you're missing. Heaven is about Christ. If it's not about Him, you're not looking forward to the right thing. If it's not about Christ, if it's only about grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, sister, brother, then you're missing the point of heaven. What makes heaven heaven is Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives us that illumination. God has placed a guarantee for our final redemption, and that guarantee is the Holy Spirit Himself. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the one who tells us that we are the children of God. Believer, I want to give you this assurance that you can't tell anyone else whether or not they are believers or are a child of God 
definitively like the Holy Spirit can. Neither can anyone else tell you and me whether we are the children of God as definitively as the Holy Spirit who tells us specifically that we are God's children. That is something that has to be done. It's supernatural. We believe that God has grafted us in with the promise of the Messiah and eternal blessings. But there's also a future promise here in Jeremiah to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the nation of Israel itself. In fact, there are three main views concerning the people in this text that we see here in the New Covenant. Number one, the nation of Israel exclusively, which is ultimately going to resume in the millennial kingdom. Number two, some people believe that this is the church exclusively, that God replaces Israel with the church made up of believers of Messiah, both Jews and Gentiles. And number three, this is the third view, the nation of Israel with the church enjoying some of the blessings of this covenant, mainly the Messiah. The position of our church, by the way, is the third position. And we know that we participate in the new covenant because it's very clear that Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You'd have to eliminate all those verses if you don't think you participate in any way in the new covenant. You do, and you participate, and I participate with the Messiah. But Scripture here has an immediate context with broader implications. Some facts here back in Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at what he says here in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So, this is a covenant that he had made historically with their fathers. That means generationally, he goes back historically and says, this is a covenant I've made with you, Israel. And guess what they did? Did they keep that covenant? No. They constantly kept disobeying. In fact, Israel went through a process that many believers of Jesus Christ go through. They welcome the gospel message. They're saved. They're radically changed. And then what ends up happening is they get callous. It starts becoming easy to assume you're right with God, and you don't need to worry about fellowship because Jesus covers it all, so I could just do what I want. And what ends up happening is we would not go out and say that to people, but we start believing it in the way that we live. How do I know that? Well, we start thinking that it's not as important to make sure that we have a short list with God. We haven't asked for forgiveness when we pray before God in a while. Let me ask you, believer, if, if you didn't ask for forgiveness, let's say yesterday, right? You didn't ask God to forgive you for anything yesterday. Does that mean that you lived a sinless day? More likely not, right? Like, all of us would admit, I blew it in some ways. I missed the mark, if you will. And yet, why is it that we, as we get older, as we get mature in the faith, some of us are more hardened in some areas? Like, and that's a struggle I have constantly. I, I look at people and I try to make sure that I'm analyzing them through the lens of Scripture and not vice versa. Making sure that I'm not using a person as a template to what Scripture should say. I use Scripture as a template to what it tells me about others. And one of the things I think is, 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 is kind of a tragedy, and I see this throughout my life experience, and, and I promise if, if you think I'm talking about you, I don't have anybody in mind in this church specifically. But what I find really, really tense sometimes is as people walk in the faith for a long time, let's say 15 years, 30 years, 50 years, what tends to kind of happen with some people, and I don't, I'm trying to understand this because I'm like, God, I really want to make sure this isn't me one day. I find that some people, as they get older and supposedly more mature in their faith, they become more bitter. It makes no sense. 
Like, I don't understand. Like, they, they had more joy when they were first saved, and yet what ends up happening is they're not just, the joy hasn't just gone away. They become bitter. Like, don't you have a lot to be grateful for? Like, didn't Jesus rescue you? Like, what, what happened? Like, you realize, like, your experience is nothing like Job's. The guy lost his whole family. His own wife told him to turn away from God. That's not a good encouraging spouse. But yet the man didn't want to curse God. He didn't want to sin. And, and if you've been in the faith for any amount of time, I, I just really, I'm pleading with you. What happened that you have gotten so cold to certain things? Why is it so easy for us adults, and particularly those of us that are parents, to point out our kids' sins but never own our own? Like, you ever notice doing that? Like, I get frustrated with my kids yelling at each other, and then I realize I yelled at them. Oh, Dad, where do you think you got them from? Hello? Am I the only one? I mean, it's just, isn't it amazing? Like, we have all these excuses. I mean, I know I've mentioned this before. Like, when someone else is late, we're angry at them, right? But when we're late, we have the excuse every time. You know, it's only everybody else. And I think the famous one in married spouses is, you know, it was my husband or it's my wife. That's the reason we're late. You know, whatever it is. Like, it's always someone else's fault, right? And yet, that has perpetually worked itself into the Christian faith. The things that we warn others about are the things we ourselves do. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's fascinating when we look at the Old Testament and see how much Israel messes up. I mean, it's just a constant mess up that we're reading about. I mean, how many times do you read about idolatry and them doing the same thing over and over? You're like, oh, they did it again. Yep, they're about to get judged. Yep, I can see it coming. Like, the plot line's very easy to follow sometimes, right? They went and worshiped false gods. God brings them into captivity. They repent. We're sorry, Lord. Go right back to doing that again a few years later. And we don't do the same thing? Like, how many of us, if we're to be honest, like, we, have, we actually have sins that we probably have asked for forgiveness for more often than we would like to have met? Like, there's some secret stuff that nobody knows. It's dangerous. It's scary. If anybody ever saw them on a screen, it would terrify us. And yet God knows that. He knows that about you and me. And believe it, look, here's the encouragement. It is covered under the blood of Christ. For me to say it isn't would me deny the word of God. But if your goal and my goal is not to be holy like the Holy Spirit intends for us to be, then what we need to ask ourselves is, where's our assurance that we're his children? Some things here that we see in the text show that God is actually bringing a literal Israel to restoration. When he refers to Egypt here in Jeremiah chapter 31, he's specifically mentioning an actual nation that enslaved the people of Israel. A literal Egypt, Israel was actually del delivered from, not just a figurative spiritual Egypt. This is a literal Egypt that they were delivered from. God himself also here will bring an inner transformation. How do we know that? Well, look at what he says here. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now, believer, here are some broad implications for us as, as Gentile believers that have trusted Christ. The Holy Spirit's been given to us. We're led by him, and we've been given the ability to now obey the law. 
we now get to understand God for who he is because the Holy Spirit reveals that to us. We have a benefit of having the Holy Spirit. But here's some things that are clearly not fulfilled in this text, and that's why it's important to realize that just because you and I have some benefits of the new covenant does not mean that God doesn't have literal promises that he's going to make to the nation of Israel and still fulfill them one day. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 34. Verse 34 says this, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I don't think we're there. I don't think we're at the point where a whole nation does not need instruction anymore. God has forgiven all those who come through the blood of Christ, but we still need direction during this time. As one author put it based on this text, he says, even from a Christian perspective, this text cannot be said to have been fully fulfilled. We are not yet at the point where we no longer need teachers or evangelists who will encourage others to know the Lord. We are not yet at the point where we can claim that all, that all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This remains a promise for the future, which is also recognized by the epistle to the Hebrews. So believer, remember this. When God promises Abraham, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed, guess what that ultimate blessing is? The Messiah. That's the ultimate blessing. You and I get to partake with that. You know what we don't get to do? Take everything else that was promised to the nation of Israel and start applying it to ourselves. There will be a literal reconciliation of the nation of Israel with God. And how do we know that? Well, number two, the point, second point is the certainty, verses 35 through 40. Let's read this. It says this. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. These are literal, literal people that did certain things. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall be again extend straight forward over the hill Gerub. Then it shall turn toward Goeth. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord." It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. So, here's a question. If he is speaking to only the church, then why is a literal nation being addressed? Why is the sin of the nation of Israel being addressed if he's speaking only to future believers? That is why I don't believe that position is in any way viable. In fact, here's what's interesting. God is as likely to abandon Israel as he is to stop the sun from shining, the moon and the stars light, or the waves crashing in the sea. Let me stop here for a second to make this point clear. 
Believer, if God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. You know why? Guess what we do that they do? Disobey. If God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, which is an unconditional covenant that he makes with them, he says, I'm going to do these things. He won't keep his promises to us. So when God says he's as likely to, to abandon Israel as he is to stop the sun from shining, moon and stars light, or waves crashing in the sea, that means never going to happen. That's never going to happen. As soon as someone come up with the measurement of the heavens or explore everything in the earth, look at what he says, if heaven above could be measured, the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, then God would turn his back on Israel. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Nobody has that kind of knowledge but God. God, in fact, here promises the city will be built for the Lord with locations that many may contest, but must admit is actually spelled out in too fine detail to merely just be a spiritual city, as Augustine said. As one author put it, God announces the literal city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt using specific geographic markers to clearly explain that he has intended that a literal material Jerusalem be understood and not a symbolic or spiritual Jerusalem. All of it shall be holy to the Lord. In fact, the tower by many commentators of Hanil was probably the northeast corner of the city. It's an actual physical location. The corner gate probably refers to the one at the northwest corner of the city wall. So, we've learned a lot of things today regarding the new covenant. And believer, I want you to understand that this new covenant is so vital and important today, it's not to be underestimated. This is so important today to us as Gentile believers and to the nation of Israel. So what is there for us to glean here? Well, there are three texts of Scripture that actually mention a city that many of you and I know is referred to as the New Jerusalem. Galatians 4.26, turn your Bibles really quick there, Galatians 4.26. says this, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. We're going to put a piece of this all together. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 22 through 24. I'm sorry. There it is. This is an incredible text. I've actually not noticed this text probably as I should have before. Look at this. It says this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the what? The new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. 
So there's a heavenly Jerusalem where God dwells with his angels and those that have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. The firstborn. Firstborn who are registered in heaven to God. And then the last one, we're not going to look at the whole chapter, but Revelation 21 through 22 tells us of a new Jerusalem that will one day come down to the new earth. So even if you were to try to spiritualize it, it's an actual physical place. It's an actual place of dwelling. Our loved ones that have gone on to heaven, those that have trusted Christ, are actually dwelling in the new Jerusalem as we speak. Did you know that, believer? Listen to what Arnold Fruchtenbaum says about new Jerusalem. This is great. The future time when the new earth is created, heaven, or the new Jerusalem, will come down upon the new earth. The eternal abode of the triune God, the elect angels, and the redeemed men will be in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. If one distinguishes between heaven and the new Jerusalem, then one can say that believers will go to the new Jerusalem in heaven, and eventually the new Jerusalem will be placed on the new earth when the new earth is created after the messianic kingdom." Believers, there's a literal city that our loved ones that have gone before us in the faith are dwelling in right now. Remember when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you? There's a literal place you're going to be dwelling one day. Stop assuming just spiritual jargon and realize there are real physical places that we are going to be dwelling in one day. That new Jerusalem is going to come down when this whole world is rebuilt after the millennial kingdom of Christ. So, technically speaking, and I, I hold this position, if you disagree and it's fine, Fruchtenbaum says, you know, they're, they're interchangeable, but you can make a difference. Technically, our loved ones are in New Jerusalem. They're in heaven, but in the city, New Jerusalem, that will one day come down. So, in light of the things that God has prepared for Israel, they will have the temple restored one day. They will literally have New Jerusalem here on this earth. How do we live in light of that, believer? How do we live in light of that? Let's, let's, let's ask a question. Do we worry more about temporary things instead of eternal things? I mean, I, I think this year especially kind of shows us where our heart is at more frequently and, and readily to us than probably most years. Usually when you're kind of going through the motions, it's easy to just flow through life. It's not a big deal. This year kind of, kind of, I don't know if it hit you like this. It was just a smack against the wall. Like you didn't even see it coming. So here's a question. I mean, those of us that are parents, are we worried more about the children's school than eternal things? What about our jobs, those of us that have our jobs? I don't know about you, but I have this longing and a need to escape. That's what I have. I just want to go away somewhere. Like, is there another, I know most people say, there's another planet. You know, sometimes I actually want that. It would be nice to just escape all of this. But am I concerned for eternal things or only temporary things? What about the government regulations? I mean, is that not the point of contention now in our world? 
You have this big disagreement on masks online where both sides are giving you their counterpoints and points and counterpoints and one scientific, no, it's not, this one is. No, it's not. It's amazing. Believer, all those things are important for us to think through, but are they at the level of eternal things? That's what I'm going to ask you. What about the chaos that's going on in our nation? Are you praying only so your kids don't get hurt, parents? Or are you praying that there's a revival and people get to know Christ? Like, what's, what's your intention for praying during this time? You know when it's most dark, the light can shine actually the brightest? I don't know if you knew that. When it's the darkest, the, sh- the light can shine the brightest because it's more visible at that point. We don't turn a blind eye to things that have gone on. We should strive for leaders that will be seeking justice for all, but let's not swap the temporary fears for the eternal. So here's another question we'll finish up this morning. What are ways that you're impacting those around you? Like, like think through that. Like, what are you doing in your impact to those around you? Do they know you as the complaining type? right now? Do most people, like, if they were to observe who you are, yeah, that person, they just complain all the time. Like, I can never talk to them about anything. It's always doom and gloom. They're perpetual Eeyores walking around. Why bother? Believer, you don't have any hope? Like, did Jesus not rescue you from eternal damnation? Like, what happened? Do you share the gospel with others? Or is it news articles only that bother you? Look, I'm preaching to me too, all right? It's not, it's not something I'm just pointing to anybody in here. Believer, you need to stand up for your faith. And you need to make sure that your rights as a citizen are heard to the public and to the leadership that God has placed over you. People in the Bible have always done that. That is absolutely still proper to do so. But realize that at the end of the day, you doing that without praying about it is a lost cause. At some point, you need to adjust based on what the circumstances are. See, I, I know history well enough and read enough to know that there may come a point to where you and I need to leave an area that God's given us and called us to. Historically, people have fled when it got difficult. In fact, Jesus, as a baby, was brought where? To Egypt, right? It's not unbiblical to leave if you have to. That may happen at some point. But believer, are you making eternal things a priority, though? Are you trying to impact people for the the kingdom or only the politics? Understand that all these things that we have going on are under the dominion of a sovereign God who rules over all. God is not surprised like you and I are about this year. It's not like 2020 hit. Oh, yeah, 2020, this is it. He already knew it. It It didn't catch him by surprise like us. He knew what 2020 was going to be. The church has to be the light to the world. This is our opportunity to shine as lights in a dark world. 
When your family and friends are absolutely gloomy and it's doom all the time, you can be the glimmer of hope with the gospel. Believer, you can be the testimony that God uses to lead someone to saving faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you yourself don't have any of the joy of the gospel, why would they want it either? Why would I want something that somebody has that looks like they're still as miserable as I am? This is one of the reasons why, and I want to be very practical here, okay? And I'm being very direct. And please, I promise you, I'm not here to judge any person. I know God ultimately does the judging here, okay? That is one of the reasons why Christian marriages should be the best marriages. Believers? Christian homes should be the best homes. Christian fellowship should be the best fellowship. Our friendships with one another should be the best that people see. And yet the church is constantly fighting and always putting each other down. Well, they don't like what I like. You really think in the kingdom of God one day when you're standing in glory, all those preferences God is really going to care that much about? Oh, yeah, you, you like Pepsi, this guy like Coke. Oh, yeah. You're going to have your own category over here? No. He's not going to care about the colors that you prefer over somebody else. And a lot of the things that we fight over are purely opinion sometimes. If you're going to fight over something, make sure it's the Bible. Like, I don't see most Christians getting up and going, I don't think you interpreted that verse properly. That's not most fights in churches. Most fights in churches are over pathetic things. Well, they didn't say hi to me today. Wow. That's a real biblical reason to get angry, right? It's not just any love that drives out hate, believer. It's the love of Christ demonstrated on the sacrificial cross for people. And you and I have that message to deliver. It's the heart condition that needs to be brought back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only kind of love that lasts long term. But you can't give the world what you don't have, believer. You can't share what you don't own. If you're not in this Bible, you can't share it with somebody else. And John 3.16 isn't going to cut it. So in conclusion, I have this one question. We're going to be done this morning. How does eternity impact your present? How does eternity impact your present, the here and now? If it doesn't, then you have more things to be concerned about than you realize. Let's pray.